Tonight's talk is on craving, or uh, tanha in Pali. So this afternoon I went for a walk with Greg, and as we were walking, we were liberating trees. It's one of my favorite things to do after heavy snowstorms. It's uh, very satisfying. Um, You know, you pull them out and then they spring up. I consider us members of uh, the Secret Society of Tree Liberators, also known as the National Tree Liberation Front. (laughs) Some of you may even be members yourself. And it feels like it has a certain kind of merit because it feels so wholesome, like helping the trees. And then I was thinking about tonight's talk, which is um, even more meritorious. I'm talking about uh, the freedom teachings of the Buddha, liberation teachings of the Buddha. So as most of you know, the Buddha's teachings have um, been summed up in the Four Noble Truths, one of his uh, main discourses, reportedly the first one. The truth of dukkha, the cause of dukkha, freedom from dukkha, and the path leading to freedom. These four noble truths, and um, we've heard a bit about dukkha the first noble truth, so today we're going to move on to the second noble truth, the cause of dukkha, the cause of suffering. So the second noble truth uh, tells us that the cause of suffering is craving. And the third noble truth uh, tells us that we can experience freedom or release, the sure heart's release, in the release of craving. So I'll talk a little bit about both of them. And the point of practice is to pay attention to where there's suffering, where there's dukkha, to see whether craving and attachment are present or when they're present, and to learn how we can let go of craving in order to experience freedom of heart and mind. And so given this central importance of craving in the teachings, We must understand it if we want to have happiness and peace. The Buddha said that the cause of suffering or craving is to be understood. So the Pali word is tanha, and it's uh, the most direct translation is thirst. Sometimes it's called shackles in the heart. So the strength of that word, thirst, it's a strong word. The strength of that word implies that we're talking more about more than a simple preference or simple desire, but rather that we're talking about um, a kind of desire or wanting that has a, a, a contracted quality to it, a stressful quality to it. So this grasping quality is present. In fact, in Tibetan Buddhism, um, the word is translated as grasping, often translated as grasping or attachment. So this is the kind of desire. Craving is the kind of desire that wants something for ourselves. And it's entangling and binding. I'm sure you've noticed this during your time here. So it's not free. 
Now, in Buddhism, we've also talked a little bit about wholesome desires. So there's the desire for a true well-being, dhamma chanda. And there's the desire to do which is what is skillful, kusala chanda. So chanda, um, this wholesome desire. But tanha, ordinary desire, is uh, thirst or craving. So it's a kind of desire that's unwholesome. It's blind. Uh, It's based in ignorance and selfishness. It leaves us always seeking and not at peace. So in some ways, if we want to know if a desire is wholesome or not, one way we can look is to see if there's contraction in the heart or mind, whether it's a desire that's like this or a desire that's like this. And I believe that... um, All unwholesome desires have some contraction there. There's some stress in the heart. And then there's the chanda desires, which are um, open-palmed. The heart doesn't feel constrained by them at all. So tanha, craving, a tendency to grasp at what we want. And it's a deep part of our conditioning. And it comes out of our conditioned reaction to feeling tone. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So when something pleasant comes along, the uh, tendency, if there's not careful attention, is to grasp, to want, to crave. Something unpleasant comes along, and if mindfulness isn't present, there's a tendency to push away and are to, are to not want. And basically, they're just two sides of one coin. <laughs> the wanting things to be somehow manageable, controllable, or different than the way that they are. And then um, the neutral, where if we're not paying attention, we just space out, we're not here. So a lot of our happiness strategy as humans is, is based on this kind of um, conditioning, this, this conditioning reactivity to feeling tone. And the tragedy is that, that this very strategy doesn't lead to peace. I think we've all seen that here. It leads to suffering. We condition our minds to want and to want and to want, and there's no peace. It's easy to see that we live in a society that glorifies craving and desire. In the continuing search for the anti-dharma, <laughs> in advertising, I came from, uh, from Honda, we have the tagline, something new to crave, crave.honda.org. <laughs> There's one... Um, Restaurant, I won't say which one it is because I wouldn't want to bring up any additional craving for you all, but (laughs) (laughs) their tagline is uh, for this specific product is the simple joy of obsession. (laughs) (laughs) And our Newsweek cover I saw a few years ago was titled, What You Will Want Next. (laughs) 
So it, it's we're permeated in uh, uh, the society is permeated in um, in desire. Our whole economic system runs on it, and it does it very well too. Um, so we're we are um, steeped in a culture of desire and craving. Craving, in essence, says that this moment is not enough. This moment is a good, not good enough. It's lacking somehow. It needs to be filled. It needs more. In Buddhism, one of the um, lower realms, one of the realms of suffering is a hungry ghost realm. And it's a realm with beings that have um, huge stomachs and very small mouths and throats. And so they're never satisfied. You know, as much as they try to eat and fill themselves, they can never feel satisfied. And that really um, epitomizes uh, desire. So, craving. Traditionally, there's taught that there's three kinds of craving. There's craving for sense pleasures. There's craving for existence and craving for non-existence. So I'm going to start with the craving for sense pleasures. Most of the talk will be about that, but then um, I'll say a few words at the end about the other two kinds. So sometimes craving is a very obvious suffering to us. When we want, or there's yearning or lusting, um, obsession, addiction, all of that, it can be very obvious. And this force of craving, it may be so strong that we're actually a little afraid of it, of facing it um, directly, because it's a very powerful force in the mind. And at other times, it's a more hidden suffering. It's, it's um, subtle It's a subtle contraction of the heart and mind. We might not even notice it until we pay attention. Craving is uh, tricky, you could say, because the pleasantness of the object craved hides the suffering if we don't pay attention. So we want something, we're focused on this thing or fantasy or wish or whatever, we're focused on it. It's pleasant. And so we can miss entirely the fact that craving itself is not a pleasant experience. And then when we get lost in the pleasantness of the object, then um, it leads to attachment and clinging. So this is, we go from craving to attachment and clinging where the craving is more intense. We're trying to hold on. Aversion is, is somewhat easier to work with because aversion, it's, it's all pretty unpleasant. That's pretty obvious to us. The, the object is unpleasant. The experience of aversion is unpleasant. It's actually said that those who experience more aversion in practice make progress more quickly because it's, it's easier um, to turn away from um, unpleasant objects. It takes actually sometimes more commitment to work with craving. So as I said, because sense desire has a pleasant object, 
it can seem nice. We can mistake it, seem like it's a nice uh, thing. In fact, the untrained worldling, as the Buddha called those who didn't uh, practice and study their minds, untrained worldlings um, might not think of craving as pleasant. You know, if you ask most people, they might not immediately connect with that as unpleasant. But in practice, we have this willingness to see uh, the suffering and unsatisfactory nature of craving. Uh, and that motivates us to, to um, want freedom, to wish for freedom. It's like we have to know what the problem is if we're going to um, be motivated to, to search for freedom. Yesterday, Greg uh, talked about the um, chain of dependent origination, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit, not the whole thing, but the part that's uh, specific to this this talk tonight. So we have a moment of experience. It's called contact. It's a coming together of a sense object, a sense door, and a sense consciousness. So... There's a moment of contact, and that moment is either, as we've talked about, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So there's a feeling tone with each moment of experience of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And then if there's what's called unwise attention, um, it, uh, this will lead to craving. The feeling tone will lead to craving, and then it'll lead to clinging, and then it leads to becoming, and then it leads to um, eventually to the whole gamut of suffering, ending with sorrow, lamentation, and despair, when you uh, look at the whole chain. So, it, so the, the key problem here is the um, unwise attention given to agreeable objects, agreeable sights, sounds, fantasies, sensations, unwise attention. So the other day we had, um, somebody gave us a bunch of avocados to the teachers. And uh, one of the teachers said, well, let's leave them here and we'll have them at dinner time. And I said, well, I'm going to be at home. Um, so maybe I'll take one of the, one of the avocados with me. <laughs> and so I wasn't paying real attention. So I took the avocado and without even thinking, I said, mine. <laughs> Like mine, <laughs> it was like a three-year-old, <laughs> and um, you know, so it was like craving avocado, clinging attachment, unwise attention. <laughs> and in that moment, I did think the avocado was going to make me happy. See, so <laughs> this is how craving blinds us. It 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 really it like um, intoxicates us. It fools us. It hypnotizes us that somehow this pleasant object is going to make us happy. So let's think for a moment about an object that we might want. So I'm just going to throw out, like, okay, a new car. So we're thinking about a new car. And so we start to think about, well, the beautiful color that the car is going to be, maybe, and how comfortable the seats will be. We're going to have a nice stereo in there maybe a GPS system we can play with, and, uh, oh, it's going to ride so smooth. It's going to be new, you know, so the shocks will work really well, nice and smooth. Our friends are going to see this car. They're going to think we're so cool. Um, so this is 
a new car, right? We're thinking about it. So you might notice that um, when we're thinking about a new car that we really want, we just notice the pleasant aspects of it, right? We We just notice what's good. We think it'll satisfy us. If we get a new car, we're going to be happy. So we don't notice the unpleasant aspects when craving is present. So the Buddha said that we have to look um, a little bit deeper. So it's true that with pleasant things, there is some gratification. You know, there's something nice about a new car. (laughs) But if we take the same object, can we also notice what's unpleasant about it? So can we notice that it won't stay the same? That it's going to rust, it's going to get a ding in it, it's going to get old, it's going to fall apart, we have to pay for insurance, you know, the tire's going to go flat, we'll lose interest, a new car will come along. You know, it's like we ignore all of that when we want something, we ignore all the downside of the thing that we want and we just notice the pleasant. So that's like how we get intoxicated and um, deluded about it. So unwise attention only sees what's pleasant in the uh, desired object. Wise attention sees the whole truth. So part of the whole truth is that the car is not going to satisfy us, right? (laughs) That it's impermanent, that it's going to change, it's going to be unreliable, and it's not ultimately going to satisfy us. That's the whole truth. So in Buddhist psychology, uh, craving is always accompanied by delusion or ignorance. That they arise together in a mind moment. Desire cannot, uh, or craving cannot arise without delusion or ignorance. And basically, ignorance and delusion means ignoring the truth or the four noble truths. So, with delusion, it's like we live a little bit um, distant, so we don't really see the truth of things. We ignore the very obvious. So we take what is impermanent to be permanent. We take what is unreliable to be reliable. We take what is unsatisfying to be satisfying. That's delusion. It's kind of an amazing state of mind. I'm fascinated by delusion. The slate of hand, the tricks of delusion are fascinating. So the basic ignorance, and and ignorance or delusion, is um, thinking that something or some experience will last and that it will satisfy us. And that leads to all the, um, the the clinging and becoming and the attachment. And the truth is that in this impermanent world, nothing can make us permanently happy. Wise attention includes this understanding. 
And if we bet our money on sense desires as our strategy for happiness, they're going to let us down. We're going to lose all our money because they're unreliable. Suchito calls this um, clinging, calls it climbing a mountain, clinging to a frayed rope. It's going to be a bit unsettling (laughs) and uh, perhaps somewhat despairing. So wise attention means understanding how craving is, its nature. So we look in our practice very closely at the nature of desire. We see that it's a state of tension, a state of suffering. And we see that the problem with desire is that we can't find any peace. We satisfy one desire and another one comes along. There's this cartoon that made the rounds in the meditation center a number of years ago. So there's this yogi kind of sitting there. You know, it's a little monkey yogi, our monkey minds. And suddenly he has a thought, hmm, what's that? And the next uh, frame is, looks good. Next frame, I want it. Next frame, I gotta have it. Next frame, if I do not have it, I shall die. And then there's a, ah, monkey sitting. Next frame, hmm, what's that? (laughs) This is how desire works. (laughs) There's no rest. It's very restless, goes on and on. The Buddha compared this wanting energy to being in debt. It arises again and again and is never paid off. Or he also, another analogy he gave was the traveler who leaves without provisions and thinks the next town will have food and drinks and arrives there and finds it empty and goes on to the next village thinking that it will have food and drink and it's empty too and keep traveling. So we see that looking outwards for happiness, trying to make conditions be the basis of our happiness, sense pleasures, making life pleasant, and will never really be truly satisfying because things change. Anicca, the truth of Anicca. And we're going to experience a restless heart and mind. And so seeing this, the desire to understand what freedom from craving is begins to grow within us. A student once asked the Zen teacher Steve Allen, if you were given a wish-fulfilling jewel, what would you wish for? And he said, to stop wishing. So what should we do when craving or desire appears in our meditation. Jack Cornfield, in a tricycle interview in 2000, said, 
When I first arrived at the forest monastery of Ajahn Chah, he looked at me and said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. I said, what do you mean afraid to suffer? And he said, there are two kinds of suffering, the suffering that you run away from, which follows you everywhere, and the suffering that you are willing to turn and face and thereby, thereby find the liberation that the Buddha taught for us all. So apparently that was his opening sentence. <laughs> I hope you're not afraid to suffer. Ajahn Chah was quite, he didn't pull any punches. So what we do is, um, is, we, is we stop running from craving and we actually turn towards it as our object of mindfulness. We get interested in it. So we don't try to repress it or make it go away or condemn it. But we also, with the power of mindfulness, don't encourage it or feed it. So we do this by turning our attention towards craving itself or wanting itself. So what usually happens when desire arises is that we get very focused on the object of our desire but we, we, we actually turn our attention away from the object and towards desire itself. So it's not always an easy thing to do. It might even seem like a bad idea. Here we have this pleasant object and suddenly we're turning of our own free will towards um, um, something that's suffering, something that's unpleasant, craving is unpleasant. And so um, sometimes people ask me, well, why shouldn't I just sit in the hall and fantasize? I'm having a good time. Why should I, why should I turn towards uh, wanting? In some ways, you could say it's delayed gratification. We don't do it to torture ourselves, but we do it. We give up the kind of the, the happiness of the fantasy for um, a deeper happiness than sense pleasure for a heart and mind that are at peace. So with mindfulness, we have the chance to develop a deeper connection with life, not obstructed by the contracted heart of craving. And we have a chance for real freedom, a heart freed of the shackles of craving. So we apply the tool of mindfulness. So the first thing, we recognize what's happening. Oh, wanting's present. Mindfulness is the first and the best tool we have when approaching craving. So we cultivate this relationship of not getting lost in desire and craving, but being aware of it when it arises. And this immediately starts to help break the trance, the trance of craving. So uh, the Buddha in the Samyutta Nikaya talks a little bit about this. He gives a little analogy as he was wont to do. He says, at Savati, bhikkhus, when one dwells contemplating gratification and things that can be clung to, craving increases. With craving as condition, clinging comes to be. With clinging as condition, existence. With existence as condition, birth. 
with birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. So that's a little more about the chain of dependent origination. Suppose, bhikkhus, that a great bonfire was burning, consuming 10, 20, 30, or 40 loads of wood, and a man would cast dry grass, dry cow dung, and dry wood into it from time to time. Thus, sustained by that material, fueled by it, that great bonfire would burn for a very long time. So, too, when one contemplates gratification in things that can be clung to, craving increases. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. Because when one dwells contemplating danger in things that can be clung to, craving ceases. With a cessation of craving comes cessation of clinging. With a sensation of clinging, clinging, cessation of existence, cessation of birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair cease. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. Suppose, bhikkhus, a great bonfire was burning, consuming 10, 20, 30, or 40 loads of wood, and a man would not throw dry grass, dry cow dung, or dry wood into it from time to time. Thus, when the former supply of fuel is exhausted, that great bonfire, not being fed with any more fuel, lacking sustenance, would be extinguished. So too, when one contemplates danger and things that can be clung to, craving ceases, With the ceasing of craving comes the cessation of clinging. With the sensation of clinging, cessation of existence, of birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, despair, and displeasure cease. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. So what I like about this is it's a great description of, of bringing mindfulness to craving. So first, if we're not mindful, it's like throwing fuel onto the fire. You know, we just keep adding more and more craving um, onto the story, what's going on. But then if we don't feed the fire, so it's not like we have to get rid of the fire, get rid of craving, but if we don't feed the fire, that's what mindfulness does. We don't feed the fire, eventually it will extinguish. There's no more fuel being added. So with fuel, it continues. If we let it be with mindfulness, it burns itself out. That's how we work with craving. So sometimes we'll have this um, tendency, we'll notice lots of wanting and craving, and then somehow... You know, we'll beat ourselves up for it a little bit. We think it shouldn't be happening. We're a bad yogi. But it's human. It's going to happen. It's our deepest conditioning. And if it helps you to know, I believe it's 7 billion now. 7 billion other people are struggling with this too. It's not bad. It is suffering. We can see that for ourselves. So we change judgment into interest. So each time we become aware of craving, we can be happy about it. It's awareness that transforms it. This awareness of craving is very wholesome. 
So we can bring interest. We can see that craving is impermanent. We can see that it arises and passes away. That we don't have to identify with it, make itself, believe it. We can see that it also manifests anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unreliability, not self. And steady um, accumulation of moments of this kind of mindfulness weaken the power of craving to seduce us and to overwhelm us. So I teach sometimes in Washington State. And um, when I first was teaching there, I would go in a day early because of the time change. And so on Friday, I'd hang out with the staff. And we got into this habit, interestingly, considering our dessert at lunch today. We got into this habit of making brownies. We would make really good brownies. The brownies today at lunch were quite good. But these brownies were actually even maybe a little bit better. Giardelli brownies, they were like the most seductive brownies I've ever met. (laughs) So we would make these brownies together. And um, so one time, I, I think I'd eaten a brownie. I can't remember all the specifics, but I think I'd eaten a brownie at lunch. And then I took a brownie back to my cabin for the next day was the plan, right? And so... Sometime before too long, the second brownie was also eaten. Um, (laughs) Passive voice (laughs) was also eaten. (laughs) I ate the second brownie. And so afterwards, I was just sitting there. I was contemplating. I was like, wow, I've been bested by a brownie. (laughs) And um, the truth is, actually, I was bested by craving, not the brownie. Um, But the next day, I thought, you know what? I'm going to try this over again. (laughs) and this time I'm going to do it with mindfulness because actually I hadn't obviously been very mindful so um, the next day I took a brownie back to my cabin and you know even before I got back to the cabin like I'm walking back to the cabin right and and the, the desire for this brownie is like really strong it's it's kind of interesting because if you pay it's not in words but if you pay attention to really strong craving there's somehow the message like, I am going to die if I don't eat that brownie. It's, it's you know, it's really intense. Um, <laughs> this is not conscious, right? I obviously don't think I'm going to die if I don't eat a brownie. But when craving is like really strong, it tells you all these kind of subconscious stories like, wow, you know, you must have that brownie. If you have that brownie, you will be happy. And, um, you know, so I watched the, cra- the, the craving and it would like, it was like a wave. It would like come up and it would get stronger and stronger and stronger and there would be like this peak and then it would like go down, right? And then a few minutes later, and, you know, as I'm walking back, right, up, you know, the wave of craving, oh, got to have that brownie. I'll die if I don't eat that brownie. And then it would go down, right? And um, it was such a great learning for me. I did not eat that brownie. Um, you know, and during, you know, it was sat in my, I had plenty of chance to practice because it sat in my little cabin till the next day. And, um, (laughs) 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 it really was like such great, a great practice. So you can see it's not all happening on the cushion, right? This is like, we can explore this anytime. Um, and I really saw craving 
is impermanent. It arises. It passes away. I don't have to believe it. So the Buddha said careless attention um, causes craving to grab hold of us and to get strong, stronger. So if we're not mindful, right, we can easily get overwhelmed. And we can get caught in the delusion of believing that the object is permanent or that it'll satisfy, satisfy us in some way. And so the antidote is careful or mindful attention. And if mindfulness is strong enough, sometimes um, we'll see the desire and it'll just dissolve the moment mindfulness hits it. And other times it won't, you know, it's stickier. It'll stick around and then we can explore it and more, um, we can explore it more closely. For example, what does craving feel like in the body? How do we feel it? Are there particular sensations associated with it? What's the flavor and texture of the mind when craving and the heart, when craving is present? What happens if I watch it rather than satisfy it? And so we're not so interested actually in the story or the object, the story of what we want or the object that we want. We're we're interested in the nature of craving itself, to feel it to see what happens when we bring awareness to it. So we become very intimate with wanting. Get to know it back and front, subtleties, nuances. We don't have to be afraid of it. And this clear seeing is is very freeing. It means that we don't have to be run by craving, but that we can let it arise and we can let it pass away. It doesn't have to fool us or rule us. And so we feel safer and stronger, less at the mercy of our minds. We're actually strengthened by these encounters with craving, by going through them. And we begin to realize the power of mindfulness to spare us from the suffering of craving. Not through trying to get rid of it, but through being mindful of it so that it doesn't have power over us. There's a number of stories about... um, Mara, so you've heard of Mara. He's the uh, kind of the the king of delusion in Buddhist mythology. And um, so often there'll be like uh, somebody will be hanging out, uh, meditating, and he will come along and uh, kind of try to trick them. He's quite the trickster. So there's a story I have here of a nun... um, a nun, Alavika. So she goes on her alms rounds, eats her food, and then gets under a tree, and she's meditating. And, um, and then Mara comes along. It says, then Mara, the evil one, wanting to arouse fear, horripilation, and terror in her, wanting to make her fall away from seclusion, approached her and addressed her in verse. 
There's no escape in the world, so what are you trying to do with solitude? Enjoy sensual delights. Don't be someone who regrets later. Mara may have been talking to some of you, too. And then um, the nun's like, well, who could this be? And finally it occurs to her. She says, this is Mara, who has recited this verse wanting to arouse fear, horripilation, and terror in me, wanting to make me fall away from seclusion. And so basically what happens is she says, "Um, Mara, I know you. There's a lot of um, stories where the the person meditating or the person that Mara is trying to trick just says, Mara, I know you. And they always end the same way. Then Mara, the evil one, sad and dejected at realizing Alavika, the nun, knows me, vanished right there. So she doesn't have to get rid of Mara. She just has to know him. That's what we do when we meet craving. We know Mara. We know the delusion in it. So we can explore what is the difference between being lost in craving and being aware of craving. So we bring mindfulness not only to craving into the mind, but to the mind freed of craving. The absence of craving, or when craving um, goes away. This is the third foundation of mindfulness. The mind and the mind states present. So know a mind with craving present, what is that experience? Know a mind that is freed of craving, what is that experience? When we see through craving and feel the release of it, what is that experience like? Turns out it's pretty nice. So I talked a little bit about um, craving for sense desires. I'll just say a few things about um, craving for becoming and craving um, not to become the second and third kinds of craving. The desire to become. So there's many different ways that this is um, interpreted and explored. On one level, we can see how we create ourselves um, and how there's this... um, clinging to create ourselves by just looking at the stories that we tell ourselves. For for a while, um, my practice was when I I would go, I like to go on walks in the woods many days, and um, I would notice just the thinking in my mind, you know, thinking, and I would just ask this question, why think? And the answer always seemed to be, so that I am. You know, all the thoughts about the past, all the thoughts about the future. Um, there's, there was this desire or clinging to be, to be someone, you know, through these stories. And then a deeper level of clinging we can look at is um, what's called um, um, clinging to the aggregates or to the experiences of body and mind identifying with them as me, as myself. So this is my knee, this is my thought, believing the stories, all of that is identifying. And um, there's, this, there's this energy you can see that wants to do that. That's craving 
for becoming. And then the desire not to be. I think of that perhaps as like a rejection of the moment's experience. Or a resistance to even being here. Desire for non-awakening, which we have right along with our desire for awakening. You know, most of us here have some strong desire for awakening. But there's also that part that's like, wow, I'm not so sure about this being present business. I'm not so sure about reality. There's a quote. um, I was trying to find it before the talk. I couldn't find it. I think I remember it. It's from um, Jane Wagner, who's a um, a speech writer for um, Lily Tomlin. She says, um, there have been studies done, and it's shown that reality is a leading cause of stress. Being in touch with reality is a leading cause of stress. I can take it in small doses, but as a lifestyle, I found it too confining. (laughs) And what I love about that is, you know, it just touches into, like, a resistance, right? That we have this resistance, too. Like, we don't want to really be here at times. I think of that as the desire to um, to not be that third kind of craving for non-being. I'm not going to get through everything. Um, And then another kind of craving that can come up on retreat um, is that craving for uh, Dharma experiences, right? So we crave that last good sitting that we have, right? How often do we have a sitting? It's really kind of pleasant, peaceful, and then like for the next day, we're like, how can I get that back? Or we might crave like somebody to describe something in the Q&A session, then we're like, how can I have that? Right, the craving for a certain kind of experience, or we might just crave some peace of mind. And if we begin to see the craving here, and the um, and how we con- we're contracting, the heart and mind is contracting. It's it's basically um, we want a pleasant experience, a pleasant sense experience, and we can see the suffering in that that wanting. And we can also, as I mentioned, have a wholesome desire for peace that's held with lots of spaciousness. So we see the difference between those two experiences. So we don't have to get um, too serious. I mean, it's... We don't need to get tight and serious about this investigation. Hopefully it's like there's some lightness and, and interest um, and an ability to have a little bit of a sense of humor with what this mind and heart can do. There's a story from Pema Chodron that uh, describes this kind of lightheartedness. So she says uh, that um, there's some hilarious stories of the Tibetan yogi Geshe Ben. 
Whenever this eccentric fellow saw in himself any kindness or wisdom, he referred to himself as Venerable Geshe. And when he saw himself getting hooked by shempa or um, attachment, he addressed himself as You Fool. Once when he was visiting some patrons, Geshe Ben saw an open bag of barley flour hanging on the wall. He needed some flour, and when he was left alone, he unconsciously started dipping in. Suddenly realizing what he was doing, he screamed at the top of his lungs, Thief! Thief! I've caught a thief! (laughs) When his host rushed in, there he was with his hand in the bag. (laughs) Another time, the patrons invited all the monks for a meal. Geshe Ben was seated last. As the servers doling out his favorite yogurt, he began to panic. What if there's none left for me? How can that monk take such a huge helping? Sometimes that happens in the lunch line. (laughs) As feelings of resentment grew, he began to connive how he could move ahead of the other monks before it was too late. Then he realized with remorse what he was doing and patiently waited his turn. When they finally got to him, he put his hand over his bowl and yelled, No yogurt for this greedy fellow. This yogurt addict has already had enough. So he seems to have a sense of humor with his own mind and heart, and I recommend that um, we try to access some of that ourselves. (laughs) So the Buddha gave an important antidote to craving, and that's the reflection on impermanence. So obviously I've already been talking about that. But part of mindful attention is to realize and understand that any experience, any sense pleasure is not going to last. I used to practice that with lunch here. Um, when I was on this, my first long, my first three-month retreat, uh, contemplating lunch was part of the morning. <laughs> you know, there aren't too many sense pleasures available on retreat, but lunch definitely happens to be one of them. And um, so I'd look forward to lunch, you know, most of the morning, and then I'd be eating lunch, and somewhere like in the middle of lunch, I'd have this like horrible sinking feeling, it's going to (laughs) end. And um, it was always a depressing moment, (laughs) you know. And so... um, it was really interesting because this went on day after day, right? So, you know, the next day I'd look forward to lunch and sometime in the middle of lunch I'd go, oh, it's going to end, you know? And it took some time. After a while I started to um, uh, understand that lunch was impermanent. <laughs> <laughs> that it wasn't going to last. And started slowly, you know, the clinging started to ease some. So the idea with this reflection on um, impermanence is to help uh, um, release the craving and the clinging. What we see is in this wild world of constant change that there is nothing we can truly hold on to. And that's also why in the practice we emphasize seeing change. Because when we really absorb that, when we really see that truth for ourselves, we slowly begin to hold craving more lightly. 
and to let go. And what we're doing when we're letting go is acknowledging the truth of change and aligning ourselves with that truth. And letting go feels good. We start to notice that. So letting go is um, happening in every moment of our lives anyway. (laughs) We're always letting go. Uh, Each moment is letting go. Each moment is gone, irreversibly gone. And each moment is entirely fresh and new and unique. So in some ways this letting go is uh, the ability to rest in that freshness, in that unknowing. And as we do that, as um, the power of craving um, diminishes, we find that we actually have um, a closer connection with life. It's the craving actually gets in the way. It gets in the way of the connection. We think that if we want something that it's going to bring it closer to us, but it actually separates us from life. And so we, 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 um, as grasping and the craving diminishes, we find that we can actually touch life more directly as it is. One of my favorite quotes, I hope it's not too intense for you, it's from um, Charlotte Joko Beck. She uh, was a Zen teacher. She died recently. Um, no-nonsense type of gal. She said, practice has to be a process of endless disappointment. We have to see that everything we demand and even get eventually disappoints us. This discovery is our teacher. And there's a reason for that. It's so we'll get it. You know, we'll get that grasping doesn't work. And we learn to let go. So the third noble truth is, the, is that, the, that there is um, freedom from craving and what the Buddha called the unshakable liberation of heart and mind or the unfettered, unconstricted heart-mind, free of craving. And when um, nibbana or the um, end of practice, nibbana is... Um, talked about in different traditions, it's talked about in different ways, but they all agree on one thing, that freedom or nibbana is, um, is the release of craving. So we can think that any moment that the mind is freed of craving, aversion, and delusion, they're all related as a moment of freedom. So what we get in return for letting go is we get freedom and compassion, a poignant connection to this fragile, fleeting world. And it feels good, kind of like taking off a tight shoe. 
and we meet the truth that all things change, that all that arises passes away. And the heart and mind slowly begins to learn that knowing this truth brings the deepest kind of happiness, the happiness of peace. And it learns that letting go is the way to be happy, that letting go is the natural thing to do. And so we get so many moments of mindfulness to practice this, and it just takes a little bit of turning of the mind. I think of it like if you have a huge ship on the ocean and you want to turn it around, If you turn it just the tiniest degree, eventually it'll come around. So don't despair. Just just those little, little turns of the mind, each moment of mindfulness, seeing clearly what's happening. Great things can happen. A well-known... Quote from Ajahn Chah. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. Let's sit for a couple minutes. Thank you for your attention.